clean line design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted. If I'm being honest, today's show is as much a treat for me and my past as an information technology professional as it is helpful content for you. Hacking is a catch-all term encompassing everything from research and discovery for the public good to cybercrime that will cost the world $10.5 trillion a year by 2025. And that's a really broad brush with which we can obscure a lot of important nuance. So to help make sense of white hats, black hats, state actors, and rogues, I am thrilled to welcome our guest, internet and computer security expert Jack Resider, host of one of my favorite podcasts, Darknet Diaries. Jack, welcome to the show. Wow. Thanks so much for uh, letting me on your show. I'm excited to be here. Uh, Well, great. It's great to have you. So as I mentioned, there's a lot that goes into the term hacking, and it probably makes sense to talk a little bit about the history of the term and, and, and how it's evolved as the internet and technology has evolved to bring us to this point. Um, where, where does this come in for you? Well, the term, the, I think the first use of the use of phrase hacker is um, from the MIT internet or the MIT railroad club, the model railroad clubs. So they had little uh, trains that they would try to get, um, going around in the circles, but they modified it to make it do other things, right? And so as they modified it and changed it, they used the term hacker or hacking uh, on the trains to do it. So there was no computers when this first came around. Um, it, it wasn't intended to be used as computers, but as, as people started using computers and getting computers to do things they're not supposed to do, that's when uh, that term kind of carried over into the computer space. And so uh, to me, I think that's what a hacker is. It's someone who gets get stuck on something, there's something that's not allowing them to do, and they're figuring it a, while, a way in. So like, for instance, if you got locked out of your house, well, you might say, okay, I don't have the key, I, the door's locked, I'll try the side window or the back door or the dog door, or you know, I've got another key hidden somewhere else, right? So you, you're essentially a hacker in that sense of like, I'm stuck, I'm, I'm, I have a roadblock, but I'm figuring out a way out of this, around sure. this, past this. and. That's where I think um, that's my definition of what a hacker is. Well, and, and, and as long as there have been systems, people have undertaken efforts to circumvent those systems to get something done, right? Um, I mean, in, in, in my field during my, with my day job, you know, there are a couple of areas of the law that are built around codes, the bankruptcy code, where I spend a lot of my, my day, and the tax code. And an attorney I, I once worked with said that he, he went into bankruptcy because where there's a code, if you want to get something done, you've got to find a loophole. So he, he approached it from the standpoint of, it's not letting me do what I want to do, but I want to do it. So I've got to figure out a way to work through the existing structure and achieve what I want to achieve. And that's basically what hacking is. It's using the structure that exists and finding a way to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and um, I think it does carry over into business world too, where you have things like Hacker News, um, Y Combinators, Hacker News uh, is, you think it's about hackers, it's it, that term hacker in that sense is people who are uh, kind of disrupting the, the business, right? So they're coming right. in and saying this, uh, you know, uh, let's 
let's uh, let's modify a business. And so, you know, in that sense, Bill Gates is a hacker, and, and Steve Jobs is a hacker, and Elon Musk, and everything like that. It's just because they're interrupting business in the way it's um, it's going, and changing the, the landscape of everything. So the the first wave of of hackers when it came to technology were the phone hackers, the the freakers of the the nineteen seventies. In, in 1971, a fellow named John Draper discovers that a, a toy whistle in a box of Captain Crunch replicated the 2600 hertz carrier signal that would tell a telephone line, hey, it's time to make a new call, and he used that technology to be able to make free long-distance calls. In that community of people who understood how to hack telephone technology were two fellows named Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, who, of course, went on to create Apple Computer. So... I think your your labeling them as early hacking disruptors is is spot on, and you know look look what look what things come from from a little bit of uh, a little bit of knowledge. Yep. With as technology advanced and home computers <coughs> proliferated, the internet proliferated. How did how did hacking expand? Yeah, so, um, you know, the internet came around, and I think that changed a lot of things, right? So before the internet, there were computers, but they weren't connected. And so once you have connected internet, then that just exploded. There was a whole new group of people coming around and, and using it, and um, it became bigger. And so when you have something that's more exciting and bigger, um, then you have people who are pushing the boundaries of it, and they're, they're testing things. And software companies at the time, such as Windows, weren't even trying to make it secure. They're just trying to make it useful. And so that was their, that was their primary objective. And so you had um, hacking groups that were showing Microsoft like, hey, it's not uh, very secure. And Microsoft was kind of like, okay, well, you know, just that's your opinion <laughs> or something, right? right. Like it wasn't, um, it wasn't taken seriously. And so um, after a while, um, there was just enough bad press about how some of Windows is just so insecure that uh, Bill Gates made a uh, memo, which was, I think it started the secure computing group at Microsoft, which was like, our priority will be security now, and we will have to make this secure if we're going to expect any governments to use this or banks or any major you know, people who need secure software. And so they, they really changed their, their tune early on. And um, yeah, we're even paying hackers to, uh, you know, what vulnerabilities are you finding? We'll, we'll pay for them if you can just show us, you know, there's a bug in our, our system or something. So, um, yeah, things things kind of exploded early on, and uh, people are trying to patch all the holes, and it's, I guess it's still going on. Well, and and you you raise um, you raise a very important point there in 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 that you know Microsoft viewed security as a business issue that prevented wide acceptance of their product. They they knew that they needed to have a secure product for government acceptability. And, you know, where goes the government? So goes a lot of money. So rather than try and and fight the notion of people finding security weaknesses in their product, they, as you pointed out, uh, they rewarded it. And, And that, I think, takes us to a question of taxonomy. So there are a lot of terms that get thrown around in the hacking um, and we should probably explore them right off the bat. So uh, hacking for good is, for lack of a better term, called uh, white hat hacking. Um, what, and, and, and that can encompass a number of things. Talk a bit about that, if you would. Yeah, so, you know, you want to, if you have a secure system, 
you want to test that it's secure and you want to pay someone to test it. So even an auditor might be considered a white hat hacker, right? They're going to say, okay, I'm going to go in and make sure that there's no buttons that I can push that can actually break this or whatever. And you, you have security auditors who can say, well, actually I'm trained at finding exploits and vulnerabilities. I'll, I'll uh, poke at this pretty hard and see, uh, see if it's hackable. Right? And so that would be kind of a white hat hacker, someone who's working for the vendor or the company that wants to determine if their stuff is vulnerable. And so that can even be like um, just a regular company that says, try to break into our accounting software or try to break into our HR systems. Or, you know, we have a lot of um, gift cards in our systems. Can you break into that? And so they might pay a hacker to see if it's just possible. And then that gives them the visibility to uh, patch those problems and fix those things. So that's what a white hat hacker is. And, and and that can actually transcend corporate life but and and get into more of the public sphere uh, your I think the most recent episode of your show you speak at length to a white hat hacker who set out to find vulnerabilities in the Twitter accounts of people involved in the 2020 election after having done the same thing for the 2016 election so that's hacking but for a, a social a, a I guess, a, an ethical social purpose. Yeah, so as soon as you do anything illegal with your hacking, you're turning into gray or black hat hacking, right? So um, this this person I interviewed um, went to court and the court determined that he was not doing anything illegal. So right. that's why we can declare that he was a white hat hacker because, you know, official court ruling said he's doing what he did was legal. But it took a court to determine that. And so, um, yeah, if you're doing anything, um, you know, just maybe it's morally unethical. And if somebody catches you, then, yeah, it's illegal. You know, like, um, you know, you, maybe you saw like your neighbor's house was doing had some suspicious stuff. So you broke into their house to like check to see if everything was safe. Well, you still broke into their house. Right. So um, that could be, you know, on the, on the edge. Right. So right. You, you're still breaking the law. But you're doing something good. So that's kind of where the gray hat part is. You're breaking the law, but you're trying to do something good. Uh, but the straight up black hat is where you're, you're just breaking the law to do some sort of criminal act. So that might be hacking into a police station or a business to steal uh, stuff for your own gain. And so I, I guess reasons for why people hack are um, just for fun to see if you can, um, to steal something because it's valuable to you. So like governments around the world are hacking into other governments or companies and stealing information uh, because that's just information collection. Um, you could make money off of what you're stealing. You know, you can sell it to other people if you steal the right stuff. Or like I said, some people have um, gift cards, right? So you could steal a whole cache of gift cards or credit cards and right. look at what you could do with that, right? So there's financial gain, there's uh, political influence. You can do things um, in the political sphere to change people's minds there. And um, you can also do activism with hacking too. You can, you're really upset with a certain business or whatever. You could try to take them down to prove a point. And so within the realm of, of black hat hackers, you've mentioned differing motivations. Um, they're, and, and they're not, as you've pointed out, all individuals out to, to, to get gift card numbers or credit card numbers, although those are very legitimate um, causes of, of loss. But there are also corporate actors. There are state actors. Um, I know with, I think, what was it, five, six years ago, 
I walk into to my office in Chicago and there is a business card of a local FBI special agent and written on the back in pen is please call me regarding computer crimes. So I did what any normal person in that scenario would do. I freaked out, called our, our company's counsel, sent him a picture of the, the business card and he called the FBI and, and what they found out was there was a foreign state actor who had planted pieces of uh, rogue software on a number of different web servers and ours happened to be one of them. So whenever an unsuspecting person would go to website A, um, it would website A would call out to other web servers, assemble grab pieces of code, assemble a malicious package, download it onto the laptop and off they go. And so we were one of those websites where they had just stored a couple lines of code that didn't do anything on its own, but responded to something else. That is an example, uh, and, and it's a pretty tame example of a state actor. Other, uh, other examples, uh, the Sony hack a few years ago was attributed possibly incorrectly now to North Korea. Um, the Stuxnet worm was a state-sponsored or a state-initiated form of uh, of hacking, um, and and I would commend listeners to Kim Zetter's excellent book, Countdown to Zero Day, that talks about the creation and deployment of the Stuxnet worm. But essentially, it was a couple governments cooperating to disrupt the Iranian nuclear enrichment program starting as early as 2005 and wasn't discovered until 2010. Jack, to to what degree is is kind of state-sponsored terrorism as a substitute for or an adjunct to military action something that's going on well it's, it's going on quite a bit um not only is the uh, you know the nsa involved and the cia and the fbi but um every every branch of the military now army marines navy air force all have their own offensive hacking divisions um <clears throat> and, and force so they they're training you know recruits to conduct offensive hacking missions, right? So if you have a deployment of someone out in the field and, you know, you've got troops on the ground, what can you do to help them carry out their mission more effectively, right? You might want to jam the radar in that area so that planes can fly uh, right in without being detected or or throw off, uh, you know, inf- throw off the, the, the enemy or collect extra information from the enemy by like, you know, hacking into their cell phone and knowing exactly where they are and then relaying that to, you know, troops on the ground or whatever. Um, or it, it's also, you know, just straight up destruction through the internet. I've seen, uh, I've interviewed um, some people who have worked for the NSA to destroy part of ISIS's uh, communications and, and command and control um, centers and so it's a uh, it's quite I mean it actually does some destruction as well so uh, yeah that's that's definitely being used in the US and as as I think other countries in the world either have that capability or want to have the capability of having offensive cyber abilities um, so yeah there's a uh, there's quite a lot of it going on so uh, it, it's been said that, and I'm, I'm using the pharmaceutical industry just because it's a, an interesting example of this. Um, if, you're, if you're a pharmaceutical manufacturer, the, fil- the first pill costs a billion dollars to develop. The next one costs, you know, three cents. Um, and, and so one of the areas where you see corporate hacking as a form of corporate, is, is as a form of corporate espionage to, to try and steal some other company's information to shortcut your own development process. And sometimes that's state actors doing it. And sometimes it's just companies 
Um, speak a bit about that, if you would. Yeah, there was. Um, so China is the is the biggest state actor that's doing that right now. Um, I mean, state actors have different kind of um, goals, right? So I think the U.S. is primarily interested in collecting intelligence, right? But you have China, who not only is doing hacking to collect intelligence, but they're doing hacking to steal intellectual property and then give that to businesses within China so that they can make their own version of it. Um, right. And then you have uh, countries like North Korea who does uh, activism through hacking, such as hacking Sony because they didn't like a movie that was going to come out which talked about their, um, their leader. So um, that was just activism. But then also North Korea does things like hacking into banks to try to steal money because they just don't have enough money. So it's fascinating that they would try to make money from hacking and uh, that's, that's a, a state-sponsored system. So, uh, you know, we talked about White Hat and Black Hat at the, at the beginning here. Now we're getting to get into really weird areas because in North Korea, it's totally legal for these people to do this because the country and, you know, and even the NSA, it's legal for them to do hacking because in the U.S., that's illegal. That's allowed. They have the authorization from the president. But when you start crossing into different countries, now you're the adversary, you're the enemy, you're doing something illegal in our country, I don't care if it's legal in yours, right? And so it's white hat in one country, but black hat in another. Right. Well, and, and it's fair to say that anybody who's being hacked is probably thinking that whatever it is, for whatever reason, it's black hat. Yeah. So, um, um, yeah, so, the, so not China at this point. There's an article that came out that said China has hacked into so many different countries companies in the U.S. or I guess around the world that um, they have all the pieces now to make a, a jumbo jet plane. I think it was a Comac 747 or something. I can't remember. But they, they, they hacked the, the blueprints for the fuselage and the tires and the tail wing and every single part of the instruments inside the plane and the seats and everything. So they have all the blueprints and the intellectual property for every single item in that plane. And they can make that exact for exact like you know, it, it seems like a cheap knockoff, but it's the same materials, the same design, the same specs, the same everything. And um, yeah, it, that's just what they seem to be doing is just taking advantage of every company that has anything worth value and uh, taking it into their own country so that they can produce it themselves. Right. And the impact on American businesses is that for every jumbo jet that Boeing, for example, or Airbus isn't selling, not that Airbus is American, but for every jumbo jet that a, manu a legitimate manufacturer isn't selling to China, that's four or $500 million of revenue that isn't realized. It's jobs that are, that, that are lost. It's, it's raw currency that isn't in circulation. So there's a ripple effect that, that is pretty significant. And so there's a huge financial incentive for the bad actor to act badly. Um, one of the hands down best stories I've heard about state action against corporate intelligence is from your podcast's episode, black duck eggs. Yeah, this was a, this was a wild one. There was um, a, a big company um, just out. It had a, it had a plant or a, a you know, building out in some farm town. It was just out in nowhere. And, um, yeah, some, some security auditor came to, to do an assessment. You know, how secure is our building? We have a lot of intellectual property here. We don't want anybody taking it. Um, how easily is it for you to get into our building and, you know, steal the stuff that's in it? 
And so uh, I, I talked with the guy who was on that team to try to access the building. So, you know, they, they had to get through the security guard at the front gate, and which was not so easy. And they had to get through the front door, which was another obstacle and, you know, get into the building, not authorized, right? And so he was able to do all that. And uh, the, I think he completed his assessment and was, and was there with a couple other uh, people. There was a team, it was a team of uh, effort, you know, and so when, um, when they were done with the assessment, the team was just kind of relaxing around town. And one of the guys spoke uh, Chinese, but he was Russian. And he, um, he went to a Chinese restaurant and everything was just not right about this Chinese restaurant. It had delicacies that you could only find in like, you know, a few cities in the world. So why would somebody in this little town have such a fancy, fancy food at a Chinese restaurant, something wasn't right. So, so he, he kind of snooped around there and started asking questions in Chinese and discovered that this was likely a uh, operation of some kind, which um, either recruited people who worked at that plant to switch to you know, helping China conduct some missions, or it was um, people who were sent from China to try to infiltrate that plant in some way. So it, it kind of, you could, you could see the, the the aftermath of, of all the of, uh, effort that China has done to try to get into that from just that one restaurant and knowing what, knowing that, that there one delicacy on the menu is really what tipped them off to it. Well, and, and they were, you know, in retrospect, knowing what they were up to, they were so incredibly obvious about it. If, if you know what you're looking for, there were, there were signs and, and print on the menu saying, you know, hold your meeting here. We'll give you a big discount on the food. And, yeah. and so, you know, they were, they were probably having company meetings in a thoroughly bugged private dining room. And the, the, the cost of the food is not what they're concerned with. They're concerned with listening to what people have to say, which, yeah. which I think gets us to our next point, which is the, the phases of hacking. Because one of, the, one, of, one of the serial soft points, one of the serial weaknesses that hackers exploit it isn't necessarily technology. It's, it's people, you know, we, yes. we are the weak point in any system. So, I mean, if, if you start with, if you start and say that the first phase of hacking is rec reconnaissance, um, talk about that. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you want to, you want to just get a lay of the land. You want to see what are, what are the obstacles? How hard is it to get in here? Right. So, um, even if you're trying to access a building, you might just go into the lobby because that's like, you know, it's not so secure and you can just kind of go in and see, can I just walk into the elevators now and then go in the elevators and can I just go up to any old floor? Uh, so you're realizing that when you get in the elevator, you can only go, you can't go to any floors. You have to put a key in in order to go to any of the floors in the building. So the only thing you can do is go in the lobby, right? So So that gives you like all this extra stuff. So then maybe you could... Um, come out of there and then start researching uh, things online um, to kind of get more information. What other buildings do they have around town? How easy, how easy is it to access those? Let's go visit. What does it look like even just from Google Street View? And some people have seen just a window open from Google Street View and said, hey, I bet if that window was open in 2018, it might still be open today, right? So, um, yeah, there's lots of uh, there's lots of reconnaissance you want to do, and and all this is passive, right? So if you get caught just in the lobby, you, it's 
there's enough people in the lobby. You could just say, no, oh, I was just passing through. You know, it's no big deal. And so you're not doing anything illegal with this reconnaissance. It's all sort of passive. You're not, you're not, um, any time you get caught doing reconnaissance, it's, it's, you're never going to be in trouble because you're just kind of collecting information in a way that's not hacking into anyone. Right. And, and so once a, once the hacker has gathered intelligence, um, both from people and from, from passive observation, uh, what's next? So you, the intelligence, you might, you might gather things like um, what ports are open on a computer. You might gather things like uh, what, are they, what do their badges look like in the office. You might want to duplicate, you know, make a fake-looking badge that looks just like theirs. Um, so you, you see these points of entry. You see these possible things that you can do. You, you kind of have plan A, B, C, and D, and just say, okay, which one's the best one? Let's go with the, with the best one. So then you start trying to exploit those particular things, right? So if you see a port open, you can then say, all right, let's test that port. And so now you're being, now you're actively trying to, you know, get into that port or, or exploit something through the website, right? So you actually do the effort to break into something. And, you, and if you're going into a building, you're going to actually be trying to get past, you know, that, that locked elevator and just maybe stand in the elevator for 10 minutes and see if it goes up to some floor and open someone opens a door and someone lets you <laughs> to have the floor, right? Cause you're like, Oh, I was just coming up to the floor. Thanks for letting me up. Right. You know, you don't, you don't even say anything. Right. So that's kind of the next step is, is to actively try and get into something. So, so the shift from, from reconnaissance phase to scanning phase is really the shift from passive to active. Is that what you're, that, that's what you're saying? Yeah. And now you're actively getting in there. And, and it occurs to me that that is probably the first point where people become the real part of the problem. The, you know, offering to hold a door for somebody that normally should be scan, required key scan or, you know, using your elevator card to let somebody up to an upper floor or, you know, back, back 20 years ago, it was someone calling the switchboard operator and saying, would you patch me through to extension 901, which the operator didn't realize gave him access to a free international line. You know, it's the things like that, the, that, that humans really come out as the weak point in the system, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, phishing as well is pretty popular. You send someone an uh, email with a, a dirty link or whatever, and they click that. That could give you access to their computer, too. So how can you exploit somebody through just all you need them to do is open a link? Right. And the entire point of this process is to gain access, which is, is kind of the third phase of, of, of a hack. Mm-hmm. Yep. So gain access is the next step there. And, and a, a lot of that is, aside from exploiting what you found in the early stages, it's social engineering as well as, our, as, well as technological engineering working in the structure that, as you found it, right? Yeah, it's become that. You can, use your, you can use your wits and skills to try to, okay, so you have the option, right? Am I going to be able to get this lock open or can I get somebody to get this lock open for me, right? right. What would be easier for you? Some people like pulling out lock picks and trying to open the lock while other people aren't good as, as good at that. And they're like, how can I convince this security guard to open this for me? And so you might have like a cast on your hand. And so you're like, look, I, I, I have like a fingerprint scan that I can usually do to open this door, but there's a cast on my hand and I can't, scan my finger right now right and so you could wear a fake cast and so the security guard might say okay i'll open the door for you right so you might actually be able to get something like that done well while we're preying on the kindness of strangers 
We're talking with computer security expert Jack Resider. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. In honor of our guest, you're listening to Dangerous by Breakmaster Cylinder, the closing credits music for Jack's podcast, Darknet Diaries. Stay with us while we take a short break to listen to some messages from our sponsors. We'll be back in a bit. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at VoiceAMBusiness. Again, that's at VoiceAMBusiness. And stay current. Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at BIZDisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. If you're joining the show on Facebook Live, put your questions in the comments or just say hello. We are talking hacking with computer security expert Jack Resider. Jack, when, when we headed out to the break, we were talking about uh, the gaining access phase of hacking and, and how reliant on social engineering it is, uh, basically exploiting the kindness or ignorance of, of strangers and, and willing accomplices. Yeah, the um, it, that's kind of I, I, I don't know if it's new, but it's almost niche where you have quite a lot of um, security um, practice and and you know things you learn in school and stuff, and they're really not going to teach you social engineering in you know a cybersecurity class. Uh, I mean, they might teach you a little bit, but it, it's not really there. So I think still the bulk of it is going to be attempting to hack over the internet um, or get into systems. Uh, you know, move laterally within a network, try to find your way around. I think that's uh, I think that's going to be the bulk of it still. There are um, there are tales of people 
trying unsuccessfully to get access into networks that have been secured. And so they find some way of introducing malware, the, 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 the software that will give them access. And, and generally the, the way to do that is if you can't get technological access into the, the network, you get somebody who has access to the network to do it for you, either knowingly or, or unknowingly. Um, I think the, the, the media portrayal is you, you leave a bunch of USB drives in a parking lot and see who tries one. Yeah. And that, that has worked. I think the, I think it was called operation buckshot Yankee, which uh, I think it was Russia who did that to some U S contractors and somehow got into the U S government, um, systems just with that exact technique, leaving U S some drives in the parking lot. Mm. So. Once you've, once the hacker has, has gained access, they have to maintain access. What, yes. what does that involve? So you want to, you want to, I mean, if somebody sees that that's how you got in, or if that's, I mean, usually you're using an exploit of some kind to get in. Um, if they update their systems or patch that exploit, then you don't have that way in anymore, right? So you want to make a persistence, a persistent way back in. So you might create a back door or something. And this is typically like a connection from within their network back to your network that's like always open. Or you opening some port so that you can get back in if you need to. Uh, so yeah, typically inside a network, things are allowed to go out of the network. And so if there's a connection from in the network going out to something, that's usually permitted. And so that's where um, a persistent backdoor can kind of be created. So, you know, it's, and, it's, it kind of opens a door for you to come back in later. And, and that's why somebody, a person who should not be in a building, get letting them in the building really opens the door to doing quite a lot of damage over an extended period of time. You know, the, you can buy a, a Raspberry Pi device for $75. It's small enough to fit hidden under a desk or frankly behind a wall plate in a conference room that no one pays attention to. And doing that will give a person pretty much access at their leisure until someone figures out that there's a foreign device on their network. Yeah, and I've seen people even add like a cell phone on top of it. So this, or, or some sort of, um, you know, 4G device. So now you have a Raspberry Pi that's connected to a 4G, right? So it doesn't even rely on, the, on their network inside. So now you have a computer on the inside of their network that you can connect into over 4G and then from there, you can connect wherever they want in the network. So right. that can even be even more secretive. So now you don't, even if you were the network admin of that company, you wouldn't see 4G signals coming in now, right? You would right. see your own packets. Um, and that just uh, is, is, does a different, you know, a different approach. So it's, yeah, if you can get into a building and find a USB or a, an Ethernet port that's open and insecure, um, so some Ethernet ports require once you plug in, you need to then authenticate by using a password or something like that, and then you can access the, the, the network. And so, you know, some people, what they'll do is they'll go in and try a whole bunch of different USB port or Ethernet ports in the network to find one that works. And yeah, once they get in, then typically a lot of, this is the thing that I think a lot of companies need to do differently is when you have a, a network on the inside of your company, um, a lot of times it's just kind of a giant um, flat network, which is kind of like a single hull of a ship, right? If a, if a leak gets into one part of the ship, the whole ship can sink. And so you kind of want to compartmentalize the hull of a ship. So if one area gets you know, flooded, it doesn't sink the whole ship. 
And it's the same thing with a network. You can say, okay, the accounting people only need to access accounting computers. They don't need to go into HR systems or they don't need to go into you know, some of the other stuff. And so some networks just aren't designed well. So once you can get into one, you can just get into anything and that's a, that's a big problem, right? So having that proper segregation of uh, duties and, and, and needs that people have, I think really helps. Uh, it really stops a hacker from being able to move around once they get in too. If you've joined us late, we're talking with cybersecurity expert and host of the Darknet Diaries podcast, Jack Resider. If you have questions, tweet them to us at BIZ Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. And if you're joining the show on Facebook Live, put your questions in the comments. So last phase of hacking, you've maintained access. Now you've got to clear your tracks. Yeah, well, I think there is a, there's a phase in there where you want to get the stuff out that you came to get, right? So right. you, you want to conduct a, whatever operation you wanted to conduct. So just getting in, you know, I mean, imagine if you're in the building, um, well, you didn't get what you wanted. You need to, you, just because you're in the hall doesn't mean you got to the place you want, right? So you need to find the room you need, get the documents you want, and then get them out of the places as well. So, um yeah, that was. Uh, I think that's a that's an important step is making sure you grab the stuff you need. And what did you say was the last phase after that? Cleaning your, cleaning up your tracks, avoiding mm, detection yeah. after the fact. So I think amateurs don't clean up their tracks. They just kind of leave and say, "Forget it. I'm done. I got. I did what I need." But uh, it does become really scary when people really do try to hide their tracks because they can actually go into the logs of a of a computer and just wipe the logs which are not supposed to be allowed, right? It's, I mean, by, by design, you can't go in and wipe the logs because you want to have that audit record of who accessed this computer and how did they do it. But if you use a specific exploit, you can do that. And so it's, uh, it's really tricky to, uh, to try to find someone if they are deleting logs in the, in the system or you know, hiding, hiding themselves in other ways. So another way to kind of hide your tracks if you can't delete it is to make a bunch of noise somewhere else, right? So maybe connect, uh, maybe do some sort of um, denial of service attack on this company so that everyone's looking in that direction while you do the thing you need to do. And then that way, there's just so many logs in the systems because things are being attacked and people are, uh, you know, computers are just getting hit like, but like crazy. Uh, imagine like a whole crowd of people trying to get into a building and then just one person slips in, right? Uh, you, won't, you, you might not see that one person that slip in. Right. Because uh, that's the that's the bad person or something, right? right. So they're hiding in, in the in the noise. And for the for those who who don't have a technical background, a denial of service attack is when you 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 just flood a a network device with requests, hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions of requests from a number of different sources, all at the same time, overwhelming the interface and crashing it. So you you call you basically set a fire in one corner of the network to do what you need to do on the other side of the network. Mm -hmm. So the funny thing is, is that teenagers today are, are kind of building these um, these attack boxes, right? That can do this kind of flooding, and then they rent it out and say, "Oh, if you wanna if you wanna do an attack from my computer, it'll be a couple dollars or twenty dollars or something." And so I, I have a feeling that uh, you know if you want to hide your tracks, people are buying this kind of stuff from from certain people and saying, "Okay, well, attack from your computer," and. Uh, That'll that'll hide our tracks a little bit more. So it's kind of interesting the whole the whole thing out there. And and so are they are they doing this? Are are they basically establishing their own network of of computers under their control and renting that out? Are they renting out botnets? 
Uh, yeah, that's that's the thing is I think um, I, I've been seeing a lot of people making botnets and then renting that out for whoever wants to use it. Interesting. Well, we've been talking a lot about corporate espionage. Uh, I want to turn it to the consumer side. In 2018, an FBI supervisory special agent told the Wall Street Journal that every American citizen should expect that all of their personally identifiable information has been stolen and is on the dark web. Is this hyperbole? Well, if you look, there's a website called haveibeenpwned.com, and um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a good website. I like it. And it, yep. it collects all of the data breaches that have happened. And if it has like a list of these are the emails of people who have been you know, seen in this data breach, they'll post or it won't post it, but it'll make it searchable. So you can search for your email address and you can see what data breaches have um, my email address been involved with, right? And so if I, if I look online, it looks like, you know, mine's was in Adobe, uh, the Adobe League and uh, the Yahoo League and all these other things, right? So there's tons of different breaches that happen. So my stuff has probably turned up 20 or more times on the dark web because it just happens to be a part of different breaches that are occurring. So yes, right. I think uh, I think at the at the minimum, yeah, there's a list of everyone's. Um, if you look at the uh, Equifax breach that happened a few years ago, that was pretty much every credit credit. Um, yeah, everybody who has a social security number in the United States, basically. Yeah was was that's that data was accessed and it's attributed to china in that one so it wasn't uh it didn't show up on the dark web specifically but still i mean you've got something at that size that every every consumer in the u.s who has a credit line right um, <laughs> had their data stolen and so that's, i mean when you talk about credit data too I mean, you're talking about uh, all the different stuff all the loans you've ever had in your life and all that stuff i mean it really is yeah. Well, and, and, and interestingly, a lot, of, a lot of personal identity verification is done using things that appear on your credit report. So the, that, that's one of the reasons why the Equifax breach was particularly pernicious, because if you have that information and you have somebody's address history and their employment history and the car that they bought or, or who they're financing it through, you can really do quite a bit of damage. Um, Looking at a different side of, of the consumer interface with hacking, um, we have a question from a listener. Do internet gaming systems open unsuspecting households up to hacking? And and if so, how and, and, and what type of penetration mm -hmm. happens? Yeah, there's... Um, I don't think the internet gaming system does, but for the internet gaming system to work, it sometimes needs PNP, which is plug-and-play enabled on a router. So for certain connections to work, the router needs to open up ports. And this PNP, sometimes, it, 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 I mean, what, it, what it does is I think that, the, and I'm not entirely sure on this, so I'm, I'm kind of going off of a, a vague memory I have of it. But I think a, like a, a, a gaming system asks the router, can you please open this port so that other people can connect to me? And so the router is usually pretty nice and says, yeah, that's fine, Go, we'll open that port for you, no problem. The problem happens is when other things like Chromecast or your smart fridge or your smart light bulb or your smart camera also says, hey, I need this port open so that you, you know, people can connect to me. Now things get opened as well. And now you've got people who are accessing that open port to get into your baby camera or something like that because the router doesn't know the difference between the people who need to access it and the people who don't need to access it and your camera doesn't know either. So 
I don't like having PNP enabled on a router just because I don't like having um, these extra ports open that I don't know about, but I'm kind of a network uh, guy. I, I have lots of certs in, in networking, so um, I'm able to control it pretty easily. I think just turn it off and see what breaks. <laughs> right. Go, if nothing breaks, you're fine. Well, and one of my, actually one of my current frustrations is most consumer routers, you know, most people are going to have their their connection to the internet moderated by their cable company's provided router or the router that they bought that attaches to to their cable line or their telephone line, but it's going to be a consumer-oriented router, which, you know, most of the, the real finite controls aren't accessible to the consumer. You, you, you have big, broad on-off switches that do a lot of things that you don't necessarily understand because it's not really designed for, there's no expectation that, a, that the average consumer is going to be qualified to make those types of decisions as a network engineer would. Yeah, we've kind of, I think for the most part, plug and play PNP is on most routers today, most com consumer commercial routers. But yeah, I think what we want in this digital world um, is, if we want it to work. We want easy access. We don't want to like slow down and have to do all the secure stuff because we don't know how to do that. And that slows us down, right? It's frustrating. It's a roadblock. So it's hard for us as people who just want it to work and get frustrated when it doesn't work to also want it secure. And right. um, I think that's kind of the trade-off a lot of people are facing now is like, well, I want it to work, but I, but do I want it secure? Like, which one right. do you want? Like, it can be easy or it can be secure, but it's rarely going to be both. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's kind of like you think about the windows of your house, right? Those aren't secure, but at night it makes a nice view of what's going on. Yes. That's kind of the same thing. It's like, uh, okay. So where's the money in hacking? I mean, uh, setting aside corporate espionage and state actors, there are individuals out there who use their hacking skills for, for nefarious purposes, and they're in it for the money. Where's, where's the money in hacking? Yeah, so um, spamming is a big thing still. Um, if you can have, like, a huge database of email addresses, you can sell that database to spammers, and spammers would love to buy that from you. And so how do you get a big list of emails? You can hack a company and steal their you know, their user database. Um, another thing is, um, you know, obviously cryptocurrencies are something that are uh, worth money and anything that's worth money is going to collect, you know, to attract a certain type of uh, criminal, right? So if you can get access to someone's crypto account or bank account, because a crypto account just doesn't have the security that uh, a bank does, right? So if somebody takes your credit card and, and uses it, you can call the bank and say, oh, I didn't actually uh, authorize that purchase. Can you please reverse it? And the bank will kind of take the take it off. But right. in uh, in Bitcoin world, uh, there is no person to call to say, I didn't authorize this. Right. It's just, it either happens or it didn't. And whenever it happens, it's gone. And there's no way to undo it, right? So um, that's a, a big thing, right? People are hacking into Bitcoin accounts and stuff. Like if, if I go on social media and I boast about all this Bitcoin that I have or whatever, um, people might try to find my phone number and then try to social engineer me or, or my email address and fish me and say, oh, there's something wrong with your crypto account. Can you please click here to resolve it? And you click right. there and you log in thinking you're, you're checking out your, your Bitcoin account or whatever. And it um, was just somebody taking your password and username and then logging in real quick with it and taking all the money out of your account, right? So. Well, that, that's, so that, that's an interesting issue, and I want to explore that a little bit. Um, so 
so cryptocurrencies, they live in a wallet and a wallet can be either on a user, an owner's local machine, or they can use a, a, a service like Coinbase or, or, or another, um, uh, another entity that will store the wallet on their servers, anonymize them, encrypt them, put them behind layers of securities, and presumably they're responsible for them. So, if 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 you're keeping your own wallet, then you are the you are the point of failure for for anybody using the te- techniques you've just met, uh, talked about to try and gain access to your computer and thereby gain access to your wallet. And with crypto, once you have the wallet, you have the money. And it's untraceable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't have the vaults, you don't have the security guards, you don't have all that stuff that you would see at a bank. Right. Uh, you have to do that yourself. Well, and, and then, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, it it just it just flips the the paradigm, right? That's all. It's just now it's on you to do that. Right. And and so if you do use a vault, if you use something like Coinbase or or some other service presumably you're in good hands if you're trusting their security. But then we look at Mt. Gox, which was a vault that got hacked relentlessly and ended up going out of business, going into bankruptcy in the U S and losing a considerable amount of, of its customers money because they got hacked and people stole the wallets. And once you have the wallet key, you've got the money and it's untraceable because yeah. it's cryptocurrency. Yeah, that's the that's the other option. Is have someone else hold your bitcoin for you and uh, yeah, that's also being targeted especially by North Korea. So North Korea has been targeting crypto exchanges because they know if they can get in and steal that wallet that has all the money, you know, if they can steal Mt. Gox's bitcoin wallet, they'd have millions of dollars. And so that's what they're doing. They're attacking uh, bitcoin exchanges or anyone who has just a large wallet. So um yeah, it's uh, then then you, you lose it there, and they exchanges don't pay back when they get hacked in that way. I mean, some try, but yeah, you could lose it there. So, I think a good thing to do is to um, get a safe, <laughs> put the put the Bitcoin in a in a offline wallet like Ledger or Treasure, and then uh, stick it in a safe, and then you've got it there. Another option is to have um, a, um, I think it's. Uh, I'm not sure exactly the, the name of the companies, but there are custodians that can hold it for you, and they do have that security guard in that um, you know, vault, and they, they guarantee it or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, there's, there's other options as well. Right. But, uh, and, and, and then the problem is you're, just, you're, you're trading one risk for another. You're trading the risk of, of an outside actor for the risk of having the thing on physical media in your possession or losing possession of it. And... You know, we, I, I think every, every six months or so, a story pops up about somebody who had a Bitcoin wallet that they assembled in the early days of Bitcoin on a hard drive and the hard drive was thrown out and now they're out $300 million. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It happens. You feel like it's worthless. So I just, I don't need this. Yep. So in, in returning back to the conversation about where the money in hacking is, um, setting aside email addresses and, um, and, and, and cryptocurrency uh, credit card numbers are apparently a big target. Yeah, sure. Um, if you um, if you can, so one thing I've seen a lot of is like um, targeting smaller companies like pizza shops, barber shops, whatever. And people scan their credit card there, and um, that usually goes right into a computer at that coffee shop or whatever. 
And yep. so if somebody can hack into that computer and steal the credit cards off that computer, they, you know, how many, how many visitors do they have a day? A couple hundred, a couple thousand? Um, now you've got every day, if you can keep your, you know, system in there, your, your malware in there, you can collect hundreds of new credit cards a day. And so with that, you can go and buy stuff with those credit cards. You can use that to go shopping with or whatever. It's not an easy system. It's not just as easy as hacking into it and there you go. Um, the, the credit card, the point of sale software is designed so that even if you're on that system, you still can't see the, the credit card data and there's certain um, compliances that you need to do, such as PCI compliant, um, to make sure that you don't store it on insecure systems and stuff like that. And that there's certain requirements that that system needs to have in order for it to be secure enough to handle the credit card transactions. And if you don't follow that, then the payment card industry um, will no longer let you be, uh, you know, no longer let you swipe cards because you're not very good at taking it securely. So, um, yeah, there's a, there, you can take that and then of course you can sell those credit cards if you can't um, spend it. I mean, how are you going to spend a thousand, you know, spend money on a thousand of credit cards? You might want to just sell that whole dump to someone who can then run some sort of scheme. And the scheme right. is uh, to get a whole bunch of money mules that you take money out of, maybe call Western Union and say, here's my credit card, can you please charge me and send my money to this person and now you've got some person picking up money for you and sending half of it back to you or whatever it is. Well, we've only got a couple minutes left. Uh, actually, we only have about 30 seconds left. I wanted to ask you, Jack, um, hacking in the media. What is the high point and the low point of, de of depictions of hacking in the media? I really like Mr. Robot. I think they do a really good job. They've got yep. um, good, uh, good, good people on that show that just really do it right. And same with uh, Silicon Valley, the show. Yep. And I think CSI Miami <laughs> does it really bad. Or CSI <laughs> Cyber, I should say. They, they just do a horrible job. I will make a point to uh, to find myself a, a, an episode of CSI Cyber just to, to enjoy the bad. Jack, thank you so much for joining us today. Jack Resider is a computer security expert and is host of the must-listen-to podcast, Darknet Diaries. Jack is on Twitter at Jack Resider, J-A-C-K-R-H-Y-S-I-D-E-R. His show is on Twitter at Darknet Diaries. Links to Jack's social media, the show's social media and website, and the show's Patreon page are available on our website under this episode's episode notes. I encourage you all to support, support Jack's show. It provides an incredible service in shining a light on a complex topic in an engaging and entertaining way. If you like what we're doing, share it. Talk about us on social media and spread the word. We are B-I-Z Disrupted on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I'm happy to announce that we've been picked up for a year. So if you have a topic in mind that you'd like us to explore on air, drop us a note and let us know at contact at disrupted.business. Join us next time as we return to our two-part series on restaurants emerging from COVID. This time we focus on what COVID does to a seasonal community and the few restaurants that are open year-round. Sure, it's tough when the population of your community drops from 150,000 to 11,000. Add to that the challenges of a global pandemic and reinvention isn't a luxury, it's survival. Join us next time for Restaurants in the Time of COVID Part 2 from the wettest dry town in America. The Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and other original music are by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Kara Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network.
Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week. 